Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 28th, we're studying Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. Jesus continues speaking in parables. He draws on the images of a lamp set on a stand and a measure that is used. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Philippeck. Pastor Philippeck serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church and Holy Cross Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. Thanks. It's good to be with you, and Christ's peace be with you to both you and our listeners. Pastor Philippeck, we are in chapter 4 of Mark, a great majority of which is Jesus speaking in parables. We don't get a lot of Jesus' parables in Mark, but we get some, and this is where a majority of them are concentrated. As we prepare to get started, before we talk about more specific context, just to remind us, what is a parable? What should we be looking for when we read and interpret Jesus' parables? Certainly. So, Oftentimes, you know, you hear parable as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but really parables are are so much more than that. Parables are, yes, a comparative analogy between something that someone would experience in this world, and it usually relates to the kingdom of God, yes, and how things work, but not just the kingdom of God in general. Actually, Christ's rule and reign here as he has come in the flesh, what he is doing, what he is saying, and all of these things then don't just go as a way of comparison or analogy, you know, a story reflecting uh, the heavenly counterpart or something like that. They don't just deal abstractly with truth. Actually, the parables are descriptions of Jesus the very kingdom of God in action for you and your salvation. So they're very much a touchstone for understanding and a momentous proclamation of what God is doing in the person and work of Jesus for his people here and now, in time, and then again in eternity. And believe it or not, I mean, a third, I would say, of Jesus' teachings are made up of parables in the Gospels. And I think this directly relates to what is coming prior to our text, uh, specifically chapter 4, verse 12 of, of Mark's Gospel, where, you know, quoting Isaiah, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So this whole concept of a parable is actually not just an illustrative story, but something that concretely proclaims Christ's words and work among the, all people here and now I see us come in the flesh for us and for our salvation. Yeah, I, I said that most of the parables we get in the Gospel of Mark are concentrated here, but there are other places where you do see Jesus speak in parables, perhaps not as those long stories that we're used to, for example, from Matthew 13, or even what we just encountered here in Mark chapter 4, but much shorter 
comparisons that he will make. For example, back in chapter 2, Jesus used an image of old wineskins and new wineskins. That's a, right. a parabolic type saying, even if it's not an extended story like what we've seen here in Mark chapter 4. And what we'll get a little bit today, in fact, today's parables are, again, more of those very short comparisons. With that laid out as to what a parable is, what Jesus is doing with them, telling you about his reign as God for you, what have we seen so far in Mark chapter 4 that leads us up to what we get today? How do those things go together? So yeah, the context of what we've, what we've seen so far, the beginning of chapter 4 and the parable of the sower and Jesus' explanation of the parable in the sower following um, the actual parable itself in verses 10, uh, following all the way up through 20 there, those, those first 20 verses are actually a response, if you will, or explanation to chapter 3, where the Pharisees, who have been studying the Word of God, so these, these are people who have daily been in the Word of God, but in being in the Word of God and encountering the person and work of Jesus, they are grumbling and they are just blatantly rejecting Jesus' Word, and his work. The Pharisees are grumbling about Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors in chapter 3. They're grumbling about him, you know, his disciples not fasting like John's disciples or the Pharisees' disciples, as is custom for them to do. And they're grumbling about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus has responded to each one of these accusations of the Pharisees about anything from the non-fasting to the eating with tax collectors and sinners, he's gone through each one of them and, and responded with those, those key statements about God's mercy and his work. Which one of you, having a son or ox, would just leave him there, right? Or it is not the righteous, who, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I mean, he has responded to each one of these, these, these accusations and, and claims. So chapter 4, then, in all of this rejection of Jesus, chapter 4 then turns our attention to Jesus and his explanation to the crowd and his disciples as to why he is being met by such opposition and why his teachings are not being received and his miracles, which show him to be who he truly is, are not being fully perceived and fully understood and seen and heard, how, how then do you understand these parables, right? How do you get all this? Well, it's, it's why Jesus explains the parable of the sower even in the next section, because quite honestly, Pastor Apple, throughout all of, all of this, nobody in the Gospel of Mark really truly gets who Jesus is and what he does. So when he even gives a parable about what is going on with him and why he has been rejected— why his word that he has proclaimed and his work, the reign of God, has been rejected by the Pharisees. And those, those who have searched the Scriptures and read the Scriptures are very familiar with the Scriptures, why they've rejected him. Quite honestly, in the Gospel of Mark, no one really gets who Jesus is, and they don't understand his parables either, which is why he's got to explain it. So, Mark, one of the driving questions is always, who is this man? Who is this identity of Jesus? And you get this at the end 
even of, of Mark chapter 4. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And, and that's the question throughout the Gospel of Mark. Who is this man? It's at the heart of Mark's Gospel. And like I said, no one really truly sees or hears Jesus clearly as he is. The Son of God come down in the flesh. God in the flesh for you, for your salvation, for the life of the world. In fact, for all Jesus' teachings and all that he does, the best that can be said about him throughout Mark's Gospel comes in the middle by the Apostle Peter when he is asked, you know, who do you say I am? And Peter's best confession is, you are the Christ. That's it. In the Gospel of Mark. It's a little bit different in Matthew and things like that, but in the Gospel of Mark, it's you are you are the Christ. That's Peter's confession in the middle of Mark chapter eight. But when Jesus tells the disciples then in Mark chapter eight what it means to be the Christ, that that the anointed one, the one whom the Father would send in the power of the Holy Spirit, that one must suffer. That one must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. That one must be killed. That one must rise on the third day. That's the Christ's purpose. Well, when Peter hears that, he doesn't get it. In fact, not only does he not get it, he rejects it. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. So even the disciples, after witnessing all the miracles and the, the calming of the storm and all these works and words of Jesus, they don't get it. They're blind. They are ones who see but don't perceive yet, and ones who hear but do not understand, which is, I, I love Mark's gospel uh, for this reason, which is because right before Peter's confession in chapter 8, you get this weird incidence of a double healing of the blind man, right? This blind man, uh, first as Jesus tries to heal him, and I say tries tongue-in-cheek because the point of not restoring the sight fully is to absolutely illustrate what's going on here. Um, Jesus heals this this guy, and he says, "Do you see anything?" And and the, and the blind man says, "I see uh, people like walking around. They look like trees, sort of thing." It's just a, a quick summary. And then Jesus does the healing again, and then they see. And then after that comes Peter's confession, so as to say that even the disciples see, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really hear. Not yet. In fact, the only place where somebody truly gets Jesus to be who he is, the only person in the Gospel of Mark who utters that this man is the Son of God is the centurion as he hangs on the cross. That is the only time where Jesus is truly seen in all his majesty and glory what he has come to do. And it's by the mouth of the centurion, no less. Truly, this man is the Son of God. Only at the foot of the cross is everything that has been hidden, every teaching, every miracle, every parable, every word that our Lord has said in the Gospel of Mark, only here at the foot of the cross is all that has been hidden all along, truly revealed in all of its glory and majesty. Only at the foot of the cross is Jesus understood rightly as God in the flesh for you, for your salvation. And so up, up to this point, and, and throughout the Gospel of Mark, the question is really just, who is this man? And throughout the Gospel, many people reject him. Many people won't listen to him. Why? Well, again, that's, that's what he explains to us in the parable of the sower and the context leading up in the preceding verses for today. Today's text will also deal with this matter of things being hidden, things being revealed, which, as you said, is, is something that we're seeing happen as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark. As the readers, we know the answer to the question, who is this man, because that's how Mark started this whole account, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
and it's a matter of seeing how that plays out throughout the gospel until, as you said, it culminates there at the cross when you see Jesus as the Son of God as he dies for sinners, for you. And so all those things are, are happening. That that account is being revealed to us as we're reading. We're here in chapter 4 in the middle of some of Jesus' parables. He's laying that out, and we read now in Mark 4, beginning at verse 21. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's the text for today, Mark 4, verses 21 through 25. We've got two images here, Pastor Philippek, and these are, I will say, these are challenging ones for me. That The fact that there's not that longer narrative like you had in the parable of the sower, and even the slightly longer narratives that you'll get after this, to me, just they make it a little more challenging to figure out what is what is Jesus getting at. But we're going to do our best today. And and the first image that Jesus gives is the lamp. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And to Jesus' question, it's kind of like, well, well, duh, Jesus. I mean, that obviously we know what we're supposed to do. The trouble is, well, what's the lamp? We've we know light from Scripture. It gets used in a variety of ways. What are our choices? Oh, how do you think Jesus is using it here? That is a that is a very good question. And um, before I I really get into the depth of that, I'll just maybe make a quick comment on on what you said about the difficulty of these verses. I think the the way to understand these is really through uh, Mark four twelve, where previously after explaining uh, getting into the the parable uh, and telling them that the disciples that they are the ones to whom the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given and outsiders of the parables the quotation of aren't that way so the quotation of Isaiah comes that they may indeed see but not perceive that they may indeed hear but not understand that lest they should turn and be forgiven. So this this lamp under a basket is also part of the larger context of Jesus interpreting why there are people who hear the Word of God, but yet, and, and see the work of God in the person and work of Jesus, but yet reject it. So this this lamp, then, is, is an extension of that in many ways. And I think the lamp is hard to understand, and it's very confusing, and I would say that for two very poignant reasons. Because we are used to hearing this lamp scenario, this lamp parable, proclaimed in Matthew's text. Matthew chapter 5, in the midst of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus begins, before he says, is a lamp brought in these same words, he begins the parable in this way. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. So before in Matthew we get these words of lamp, Jesus already says, I'm talking about 
here in the Sermon on the Mount, having gone through everything, I'm talking about my hearers, you who believe that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has come into your midst for your salvation and for your life. So Matthew's Gospel, we are called the light of the world. But here in Mark, we don't get that discussion at all. It just begins by saying, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And this is a somewhat of rhetorical question, which we'll kind of dwell on in a minute once we get through the lamp. But um, if you remember Matthew's words, then you, you read Mark chapter 4 and you automatically assume, well, the lamp just becomes the believers in Christ. So that's, that's the first hurdle of, of interpretation. The second is, if you're not really paying uh, terribly close attention to Jesus' words and the focus point of the sower, terrible, then what ends up happening, quite frankly, is you hear the last couple of words in, in Mark 4, right before this, Mark 4, verse you know 20, and you get these things, but those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And you might be tempted then to be, just simply say and equate, oh yeah, well that's just believers producing the, the fruit of good works in their life. Um, there again, you might think that the lamp is, in fact, believers in Christ. But in Mark's Gospel, the absence of that first thing that I said in Matthew, you are the light of the world, and the focus of Jesus on the parable as to why those who have witnessed the words and work of Jesus are actually rejecting him, further actually goes against the interpretation that we are the light, the lamp in, in the Gospel of Mark that's being talked about, and that we are the ones that are hidden. And because of all the context of Mark chapter 4 and everything that we said leading up to this about people not getting it, and the seed going forth, the word and work of Jesus, and, and all people seeing and hearing but not really fully getting it, and the reasons that this, this happens, and the various rejections of Christ that he lists in the parable of the sower, because of all of this, Jesus is actually talking not about his hearers in, Mark, in Mark's account. He's actually talking about himself. Like, the, the lamp that is hidden is he who is the light of the world. Now, there is a connection to believers, but first and foremost, my interest is in staying with Mark's gospel and making sure that, that we're getting the fullness of what he's trying to do here in his proclamation of, of Christ for us. So the lamp that is, that is coming in and, and brought in, I, I would say, to the world, um, what's being happened? Well, you don't put that in a basket or, or under a bed, right? There's a rhetorical question. Of, of course not. You put it on a stand that the world, that it may illuminate everything, that everything may be seen in light of this light. Uh, so we'll see that all throughout Mark, and you could even uh, you could even pull in John here. John's thought of I am the light of the world, and John's thought of of chapter twenty, verse thirty one. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life in His name. This whole Jesus being the one who comes in glory to work for you in salvation, while it is hidden, it will be revealed, and that lamp, then that light will illuminate 
every word and work so that the disciples and those who hear and believe Jesus' words might have that sort of, I get it, almost like the John 2 when he said, destroy this temple, and then they didn't get it. John makes the point of saying, but after the resurrection, they remembered his words. It's like, oh, this is what everything was about. Got it. So that's going to be the pivotal point then at the cross where this light shines and illuminates all corners of Scripture. So as we understand that, that all of this is about Christ and his work of salvation in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and even today, and then also that, uh, that, that light might shine to illuminate in our own lives. So, okay, in verses 21, and I think we're, we're starting to incorporate 22 as well in this, you're saying mm-hmm. that based on Mark's context, we want to understand lamp first and foremost as Jesus himself, that he is the light of the world who has come to be revealed, to shine his light. Again, to, to bring in some John, some of John's language, to shine that light into the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. That's that's exactly. what Jesus is doing. But now in, in the point we're at in Mark's gospel here in chapter 4, though, it's still hidden. People are not getting it. And I think that's where verse 22 comes into play a little bit more that Jesus is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Jesus is saying here, right now the light may be hidden. You're not even getting it, dear disciples, but it is going to be made manifest. Stick with me and and you're going to see it. Something to that effect? Yeah, I think that's absolutely what naturally follows. If you understand Christ as the light and the purpose of it being set, being him being set on the stand to give light to all to the world for everything to be illuminated by him. Then the next then the next statement in 22 makes a whole lot of sense. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So there's this understanding that the reason that all of these things are hidden right now is that Jesus is still on the journey to the cross where he will be the light for all people that lightens the darkness, that shatters the darkness of sin and suffering and death to the point that even even the uh, the outsider, the centurion, who's not part of the natural promise born bloodline Jew here, you know, like David or, or any, any of his descendants there, even a Gentile will look at that cross and say, oh, truly, this man was the Son of God. And that light will just shine and everything else will make sense. So, so we're not there yet. But even though we're not there... That's okay. It is coming, Jesus is saying. Even though you don't get it, even though it's hidden, why is it hidden? Well, it's not going to remain hidden forever. Its hiddenness has a purpose that when it is set on that stand, it may actually shine with all of its glory and all of its light so that everything may be made manifest. So at the cross, the light of Christ is manifested so that even his disciples and those who confess him to be the Christ, even those who receive his word, then also produce grain and it grows in them yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold because that light has been brightly and manifested. Christ for us and for our salvation. So I think that is the most natural way 
as, as you read through Mark to understand this, I just think that sometimes our, our, our understanding of, of Matthew comes into play. You know, I, I would call it maybe a mental, a mental uh, hang-up or, or pony. You know, we're so used to encountering the, this in the Gospel of Matthew that sometimes we don't, let, we don't see the profundity in the Gospel of Mark for what it is. But yeah, everything through Jesus' identity is currently hidden, even from the disciples, but it will be made manifested and made clear first at the cross and the empty tomb, and then ultimately on the last day when the light completely melts away the darkness. See how you do have that some eschatological. So that manifestation, I think, is sort of, and I'll use the, the grammatical term, a double entendre. It has a dual meaning. The first and foremost in time meaning where Christ's glory is manifested and people begin to get it is at the cross. His suffering, bleeding, dying, and then is rising again. And then also Marcus talks about the, the, the days, the dark and latter days, and all of those things, the return of Christ. So there is a, an eschatological reality in Mark 2 that when he returns again in glory, we shall also be basking, I'll just say it like this, basking in the light, that all of the darkness will have gone away, and the full manifestation of Christ in all of his glory will be ours. We will live with him. Thinking about the way that Mark has, as you mentioned earlier, right in the middle of his gospel, St. Peter saying to Jesus, you are the Christ, that's the confession he gives. But then right away, Peter comes right back at Jesus and says, but you're not going to die, Jesus. I know what you said, but but that's not going to happen. Is there yeah. an element of the hiddenness that Jesus talks about here that's not only chronological, in the sense that you haven't gotten to the cross yet, so it's not revealed in that sense, but also an element of hiddenness in the sense that the cross isn't what people were looking for anyways. Not only had they not gotten there, and so they couldn't know, but they weren't thinking that the cross is where Jesus was going to go anyways. And and in that sense, it's it's hidden in the sense that you don't expect it, and yet when you get there, all of a sudden, that hiddenness that you weren't looking for, that very hiddenness, boom, that reveals to you what was true all along. Is, is, is that part of it as well? I think that is part of it, and I think that's, it's a very well said in, this, in the second part, because I would actually, as I had said before, I would lean heavily upon the fact that the Pharisees, who have studied the Scriptures, and who have read the Scriptures, and are familiar with the Scriptures, are the ones who don't get it. Because they're expecting something else, not a Messiah who would suffer, bleed, and die, not one who would come in weakness and lowliness, but in, in pomp and circumstance, so as to restore Israel to the number one nation. So this, this is the understanding that lurks in the background of the Pharisees of chapter 3 and why they reject Jesus. Well, he's not following the law the way that he's not doing this. He's not doing what we should think he should be doing. He's not. So, so all of this then... then comes into play in chapter four. I think you have a, both what you said and with the, with the not looking for and not the correct understanding of what the Messiah is lurking in the background, and the chronological events not yet fulfilled, not yet on the cross. Both, I think, are at play, and both are vital to the understanding of this text. Yeah, as we continue to see how Jesus reveals himself here in the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 4 today. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 28th. We're looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. We've got Pastor Adam Philippek with us. He serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church and Holy Cross Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota. Pastor Philippeck, prior to the break, we were talking about the first couple of verses here of our text, that Jesus is the lamp, the one who has come into the world to shine his light into the darkness. At this point in Mark's gospel, that is hidden. People don't understand. They're not going to get it until he comes to his cross, until he dies there. The centurion makes that wonderful confession Truly, this is the Son of God, and that is the confession we are brought to when we see Jesus dying for us as well, and that is what the Church proclaims still today. And you mentioned that you know Mark and Matthew, they're doing different things. Jesus is doing different things there when he uses this image, but Jesus does call his people, the Church, the light of the world, that they are a city on a hill to shine that light into the world. That light... There's a hiddenness to it still. As we proclaim, you know, Paul says, we proclaim Christ crucified. That's a stumbling block to people. People still yeah. don't get it. So trying to let's try to put those texts together a little bit. How does this work for the church proclaiming the light of the world still today? Sure. So sometimes when we get down the road of talking about what Mark's doing versus what Matthew's doing versus what John's doing— we can somewhat give an unintended thought and consequence of our words, an unintended understanding to our listeners. So I want to be clear. The difference is just in the audience to whom the gospel is written. Both Mark and Matthew proclaim that, you know, they're synoptic gospels. You take them, you see them together, and you see Christ in all of his light and all of his glory. So both of these are truly the infallible Word of God, without error, just inspired for us and for our salvation. It's, so I don't want you to, to get the impression that when we talk about this, you know, Mark's right, but Matthew's way off. This happened, but the, no, 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 no. There, so to, to harmonize the two, to, to show that how they, this all works together, um, by extension of Jesus being the light then, we, too, are called, throughout all the Gospels, really, the light of the world as well. So, so you know, to ask the question, who is the light of the world, the Gospels answer it two ways. Christ and all who believe in him. That's the Gospels' answers to who is the light of the world. And the way that this works out is it's first and foremost always Christ who is the true light of the world, because he is the only one who can scatter and shatter the darkness of sin and death and the devil. We do not have any light in us, but he who is light and life, who said, let there be light, and there was light, who in Revelation is talked about as there is no need for the sun because the Lamb is in their midst. Not only will he be their shepherd, but he will be the light, right? So this is this whole thought of, of, of light and darkness, sin and death, 
it's first and foremost about Jesus. And when Jesus is hung on that stand, that lampstand of the cross, for all the world to see in all of his glory, going forth that light shining in the darkness, and now here comes the parable of the sower. There will be those who actually like to dwell in a land of deep darkness, and who hear it and see the light and yet dismiss the light. One in ear, one in all of these things. But there will be those, and specifically his disciples here coming up in the Gospel of Mark, but all believers, really, as you go through the Gospels, that in seeing this light who is Christ, illuminating their life and illuminating their scriptures and shattering the darkness of sin and death, then, of course, they will be growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold, because that, that rich word, who is Christ, has taken root in their lives. So by extension, then, I would say it this way. Christ is the light who is hung on the lampstand of the cross, who has illuminated our lives with his light, scattering every darkness, saying, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, marking us with his cross on our forehead and on our heart. Receive this light at our baptism to show that you have received Christ, who is the light of the world. Live always in the light of Christ. Be ever watchful for his coming. So we who have been illuminated by Christ and believe in him now shine brightly as beacons of light, as beacons of the cross and Christ's work into the lives uh, of those whom God allows in our path. And primarily I'm, I'm talking about vocations. So receiving the light in the divine service, uh, in the word proclaimed in our ears, in the waters of baptism, in the words of absolution, in the very body and blood of Christ, the true light of the world given and shed for us that we may receive him in all of his glory and that light may be sc sc scattered the darkness in our own life and light. And then to take that light out into the world and, and our everyday action interactions as, as parent to child, um, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, citizens, employers, that that light of Christ might be proclaimed and shine brightly so that all nations may come to the light and to the brightness of his rising, he who is light and life, Jesus Christ. So just simply put, uh, Christ is the light of the world. He illuminates our lives and allows us to shine with his glory. Jesus changes the image in the next parable. He, well, he concludes the first one, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, is a serious invitation. He's, he's given that previously in the parable of the sower. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The next parable begins with a similar call to, to listen, pay attention to what you hear. And the image changes, no longer a lamp or a light, but with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Again, not a lot of context right there in terms of the parable itself. We've got this image of the measure. We're going to keep in mind that larger context that you've been reminding us of here in Mark chapter 4. When it comes to this measure, one of the questions that I have is, okay, with the measure you use, well, what am I measuring? Based on what we've been saying so far, I think, I think it's how I'm measuring Jesus and his word. But what, what do you think, Pastor Philippe? 
Yeah, so I would go back to the context of Mark chapter 3, and what we had talked about is our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, primarily, rather, not just Jesus, but this promised Christ. So this is, goes back to the conversation we had a couple minutes ago, maybe ten minutes ago, when we talked about, in the background of the Pharisees, their understanding of who the Messiah was to be, not, not coming in weakness, but in pomp and circumstance and, and all his glory, to restore to the number one nation, um, who is what I would expect and what I am looking for, and what I understand to be true. So the Pharisees have measured Jesus all along, his words and his actions, as to faithfulness to what they think the law of God says. And I would point us back to the immediate context of of healing of the Sabbath. This is the immediate controversy, and and eating with tax collectors and sinners. You know, those three that I brought up to start all of these different things. All of this is been the sticking point as we go through the Gospel of, of Mark, um, and the healing is actually um, in, in two and then into three. You know, I've been saying simply three, but we, we should probably back up and say some of this stuff that I'm talking about as well as in chapter two into chapter three and how we're, we're looking at this. So the controversy that I was talking about there is on the cusps of three, right at the end of two, the Lord of the Sabbath, and all these different things. So in the background there, we have lurking that measure that the Pharisees are holding to Jesus is our understanding of the law, our expectation of who the Christ should be, our expectation of what needs to be said and what needs to be done. So the Pharisees have been measuring Jesus by the law. Uh, They've been measuring him by, oh, he healed on the Sabbath. Well, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus has to actually say, is your understanding of the Sabbath... Um, <laughs> is it really accurate? Uh, because have you not never read that uh, David, when he was in need and hungry, and those who were with him entered the house of God, and you know the high priest they ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful, but yet they needed to eat. Or the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus has to point out that you, you're, not, you're not even understanding the Word of God. And I think this is the properly, because you're not understanding what, it, what the Sabbath truly is. You've made your own, if you will, sense of what you think the law is, and you're trying to guard the law and trying to keep every little jot and tittle as if you can. You want to keep the law? To you know, quote the words of Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And they've been trying to hold Jesus to this standard, but they've interpreted the law wrongly in many occasions and in many instances. So they're measuring by the law. So if that's how you want to measure, Pharisees, if you want to measure about your, the law and your understanding of the law, then that's what's going to be measured to you. Go on, measure yourselves and see if you are perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. So you want to play games with this law stuff? Fine. Be measured by the law, and we'll see where that gets you. So uh, they have the, the, the scriptures, but they, they don't understand Christ. And so nothing is illuminated for them. And everything in the scriptures is actually rather hidden, which comes to our last verse. I won't get there, we'll get there uh, too quickly yet. But yeah, they're measuring themselves by the law. So on the last day, on Judgment Day, those who wish to be measured by the law, so will it be measured to them. Fine. So let's see how you've been. 
how perfect you've been, like your Heavenly Father has been perfect. Go on. Let's see if all your words and all your thoughts and all your actions are perfect and untainted with sin. And we know they're not. This is why the, Jesus says to the constantly to the Pharisees throughout the Gospels, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go and learn what this means. It is not the, not the healthy, but the sick who need a doctor. I have come to eat with sinners. Right? All of these different things that Jesus says. But if you measure by Christ, if you hold fast to Jesus' work and word, then you are measured by the manifestation of light and glory there at the cross. You are measured not by your keeping of the law and how good you think you kept the law and what you think the law means. Rather, you are measured by the mercy of God there hung upon the lampstand of the cross for you. I think the way you're explaining this, Pastor Philip, really reminds me of the very end of chapter 3, where you have mm. the scribes who, in the way that they are measuring Jesus, well, you can see how their measure of Jesus leads them to conclude about him. He's got a demon. He's possessed yeah. by Satan. And, and then Jesus applies that measure to them by the end of that text, and he talks about that blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, the unbelief which does not receive the forgiveness of sins. And based on the way the scribes and the Pharisees are measuring Jesus according to their own standards, that measure is going to be used on them, and that's the end that they will receive, is judgment and condemnation because of the measure they themselves used on Jesus and so missed him. And instead of recognizing how he was working actually in concert with the Holy Spirit of God for our salvation, they saw him as working in concert with Satan, and they missed it totally. Whereas then at the end of that chapter, you have the crowds who are around Jesus, those who are coming to Jesus with the measure that he gives, which is listening to his word, which I, I mean, I think that really connects with what Jesus is doing here in chapter four. Pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what I'm saying. You, you want the right measure for me, Jesus says? Listen to me and you will have it. And when you have the measure he gives, which is the gospel, repent and believe in the gospel. That's how he started his preaching. When you have that measure, then you, you receive all the blessings that he has come to give as you were laying out. I mean, I think these, these things really do mesh together well when you keep them in the context here in Mark. And, and, and then, yeah, I think that is vital. And you did a good job of... of um playing into the scribes of three, and I mentioned two and three, but I've been focusing on the end of two and the beginning of three, but the end of three is equally important with the scribes, which, which you just brought up, and, and absolutely, that application of the measure directly to them. This is, this is why the context is vital to this. So then Jesus concludes this section in verse 25. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. What is what is Jesus saying here, Pastor Philbeck? Yeah, so again, the same context of Pharisees and the scribes. They have been given much, because they've been given the law, and they've been given the prophets. They have scriptures, they read them, they read them constantly. Uh, so the Pharisees have been given, and the scribes and the chief priests have been given much. They have heard God's word regularly, daily. But still they've rejected him. So all the promises then contained in that Word of God, everything there in that Word of God which they have heard will be lost. 
and they will be taken away from them. Those promises are, and are essentially lost on them because they do not confess Christ and his works and his words rightly. So if you do not have or see Jesus as truly who he is, the Son of the living God who has come down by the power of the Holy Spirit to give light and life to us who dwell in darkness, then everything that's given in Scripture is lost. It's hidden from you. It will not be manifested. And just to kind of pick up on this, this is exactly why I said keeping in context, 412 is important. The outside, everything is imparable, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn away and be forgiven. So this, this forms the context. So if you do not see Jesus as the, the heart and soul of Scripture, you know, to quote, to quote John 5 on this one, 39, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have, they, that you have life, but it is they that testify to me. Or John 20, 31, these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. If you do not have Christ, then Scripture is, is rather close to you, and everything remains a mystery. But when you see Christ clearly and confess him, this is the also he who has ears. And I, I like the let him hear, but I actually prefer the more forceful uh, of the Greek, listen up. <laughs> That's kind of how that, that, that plays out there. Uh, so that you have the right measure for all of these things. When you, when you see Christ for who he is, man, in everything, it's like, wow, back in Genesis 3.15, he doesn't desire us to die, we weren't created to die, and yet he's going to do something about it. He's going to put enmity between the woman and the devil's offspring. Her, he, and how's he going to do it? Well, through a child. Oh, wow. And then you see the stories, you know, of, of God at work in the Old Testament, uh, and as he does things for a few people, Back in the Old Testament, man, he's doing it here in the person work of Jesus. I mean, just to give you one example, and we've gone through all kinds of examples in, in my years of being able to be uh, privileged enough to be on this program with you. Uh, just to give one example, you think about the Exodus. You paint the lamb's blood on the wood, and when the Lord sees the lamb's blood, he does not give you the judgment of death. He passes over you, and you go from death to life. Well, how does the Lord save his people from slavery of Pharaoh in the Old Testament? Well, through the blood of the Lamb painted on the doorpost. Well, how does he save you from God's judgment, the wages of your sin, death, a much stronger you know, enemy, death, than, than, than Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Well, he paints his own blood on the wood of the cross that there in seeing you who are marked with that blood of the cross on your forehead and on your heart, that sign of Christ, you might pass over from death to life. And you see it and you say, wow! And Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's like, wow! This, is, this illuminates everything! Like, Jesus is the key to everything. All this story is about God's work of salvation for us in the person and work of Jesus. These things are written so that I actually believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, I have life in his name. So, so these are the things that if you don't have Christ, all the promises about eternity and life forever with him and his kingdom and forgiveness of sins, man, those are taken away from you.
Because the measure that you want to use is a law. So here it is. This is your measure. It's measured to you. Depart from me, you workers in, of iniquity, into the fire prepared for the devils of his angels. But you, who hear my word, receive it, believe it, yield everything, more than you can ever imagine, of the promises of God. 30, 60, 100 fold, these become in you um, springs of living water, if you want to go the, the living water with. But, but that light shines through you, and it scatters the darkness of sin and death. So if you have Christ, then more is given to you. Because you have all these things shall be added unto you, right? But, but if, you, if you don't have Christ, if you don't see him rightly for what he is, th- then you have nothing but sin and suffering and death. Uh, there, there's a couple of examples that stand out to me, too, where knowing Christ truly as he is, using that measure, just opens up the scriptures. I've mentioned this before. One of the places where Jesus will quote the Old Testament that always just blows my mind is when he's talking to the Sadducees, and they deny the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus is going to prove to them from the scriptures that, no, the resurrection of the dead is actually a thing. And he does it from Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is talking to the Lord in the burning bush, and the Lord says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham yeah. and of Isaac. And, and I, I never would have read Exodus chapter 3 like that unless I had heard the Lord say it, unless I knew who Christ is in his death and resurrection. Another place that that, that happens for me, too, is in First uh, Peter, where, where the apostle there, especially in chapter 3, he's talking about Noah and the flood and how God saved Noah through the water, and then all of a sudden, Peter's talking about baptism. You know, and again, these, these connections that you, you see in the scriptures, they're closed to you. They're darkened to you unless you have Christ. But as you said, when you have Christ, when you measure him according to the measure that he gives you, the whole book is opened up to you, and it becomes not a book of the law, not a book where I'm looking at, say, David and Goliath and seeing what's the lesson for me to learn so that I can apply it to my own life, but I can see how in the account of David and Goliath, Christ is my David who slays Goliath, sin, death, and the devil for me. I mean, it's, it's just a, this is a beautiful thing. You, you know, you quoted from John chapter 5. The other place that always comes to my mind, too, is in Luke 24, where Jesus opens yeah. his disciples' minds to understand the scriptures, and he says, it's all about me. It's all about my death and resurrection. This really is a key, such that when you have it, you have everything, but when you don't, you have nothing. And since we're giving obscure references, if you don't mind, just a quick reference on <laughs> my part that I always, I always marvel at. So we've got, got some of the easy ones, but you, you also brought a very poignant passage to bear. One that's always interesting to me is Jacob's Ladder. Oh, uh, you yeah. know, in the Old Testament, uh, Jacob falls asleep, and he sees angels ascending and descending on this, on this ladder, on this bridge to heaven, right? And, and he, he wakes up and names the thing Bethel, house of God, right? And builds an altar there and all this sort of stuff. And then John has this thing with, uh, I saw heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And you're like, oh! The bridge to heaven, the ladder, it's, it's Jesus. This, this is the reference back to, back to, you know, Jacob's ladder. Jesus is the only way to have it. You know, it's just like, whoa! Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, it really, this, this opens up the, the entirety of the Scriptures. It, it helps us to read the Old Testament as it truly is, which is a Christian book, something in which Christ 
is active and in which the the prophets are always pointing us to him and and here he is being revealed in the gospel according to saint mark pastor philip like we got about three minutes here help us wrap things up this morning point us to christ and him crucified absolutely so despite what we may think about who jesus is and what he should do, and how he should be coming to us and helping us and answering our prayers and what we are looking for. There is one thing that remains true, and it's all about who Christ says he is and what he will do and how he will do that for us. So listening to him, listen up, he who has ears, means that we are attentive to the preaching of the Word of God and the administration of the sacraments, because therein is the light that shines in the darkness that sometimes we don't even recognize. The darkness of sin and death in our own lives, the darkness of this world, all the, the COVID-19, all the cancer, the, the diseases, the illnesses, every cold hand of death that, that illness will inevitably bring all of the guilt and the shame, all of the darkness that dwells there. And my, my question is about, God, wait, where are you in this? I thought you loved me. I, I, I thought you cared for me. All of, the, all of us who dwell in this deep land of darkness on us, the light who is Christ has shone. He has shown by coming into this world and being set on the lampstand of the cross that he may illuminate even the darkest corners of our life. And illuminating our guilt and shame, he may say to us, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the light scatters the darkness of sin in the midst of our own death and all of the illness and disease, our Lord says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he scatters that. And in a moment, in the glory, at the sound of the trumpet, he will take us by the hand and say, arise and shine and come with me, my beautiful one, my bride, for the night has ended and the day is now full at hand. Come with me into my kingdom. I will be your light and your life. There will be no darkness, no illness, no disease, no mourning, no death. The old will have passed away and the new will have come. That is the hope. That is the measure. That is the glory and manifestation of a Christian. In the light of Christ, we bask, and by the light of Christ, we live, and he will come again in glory to shine like the sun that we may to shine with him in glory in his kingdom that has no end. But in the meantime, as you are waiting in the midst of darkness, do not think that this light does not shine into your life. He has been set on that lampstand. He has been hung on the cross for you and your salvation. And yours this day is light and life. For yours is Jesus, and your sins are forgiven. He is with you always. You have life in his name. Pastor Adam Philippeck is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church and Emmanuel Lutheran Church, both in Lidgerwood, North Dakota, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. Pastor Philippeck, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.